0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. Let's turn our attention now to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 12 through 17 this morning. And uh, I'm going to start with a little bit of a question. Have you you ever been challenged in your life uh, to do something, but then just absolutely felt no encouragement to actually accomplish what you wanted to to do? I remember uh, when I was a kid, I always wanted to play college basketball. That was my dream. My dad played college basketball for a small Christian school for a little bit, and I love my dad, and I love basketball, and I wanted, to, I wanted to play college basketball. And that was kind of my dream, but in the midst of my high school career, when you're kind of developing some of that, I had to move halfway around the world to a different country that didn't really play much basketball. And when I returned back from my senior year of high school here in America, I started by playing soccer in the fall and kind of sat on the bench and then it came time for basketball season, and I was so excited, and I went to the first week of practice, and it was miserable. Even for a soccer practice, basketball shape's a little bit different. I was sucking wind. Line drills were killing me. I realized quickly that some of the gap in play had developed and just not being in the same system and the same development that a lot of the guys I was playing with was, and it was, just, it was a rough week of practice. And in my head, I thought, man, I don't, I don't want to do this again. I just sat the bench for soccer. I don't want to sit the bench for basketball. And so I went to my coach, and I said, coach, I, I don't know if I want to do this. I'm, I think I'm, I might be out. And my coach very graciously just kind of said, okay, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm probably going to play a lot of freshmen and sophomores this season anyway. We're kind of redeveloping, and so you're probably not going to get a ton of playing time. And for me, that was the catalyst of, like, peace, like I am. I am done, um, and my dream kind of died in that, in that moment. Not that I had much life before that, let's be honest. But, <laughs> but I look back. I still look back at times in that regret. I, I feel the pull, and when I look back at that season of my life, I've always wondered what, what would have happened if I had kind of gotten just a little bit in, of encouragement to stick it out. I was kind of on my own in that season, and I always wondered what if that coach had said, like, hey, it's just the first week of practice, you're, you're going to catch up a little bit, calm down, it's going to be okay. Or if maybe I had the encouragement from some others to say, just stick it out, persevere, you'll get there. Right? Sometimes when we're in places of immense challenge, encouragement is vital. When we lack the encouragement, it's so easy for us to quit, to give up, to say, like, I, I can't do this. We kicked off this series last week that we've called The Forgotten Virtue, where we're focusing on learning to love again. And what what does it look like to actually become a people of love, marked by the sort of love that God desires for us to have? But one of the things I think we all realize is that when it comes to the idea of love, the idea is easy, the practice can be significantly challenging. Maybe last week when we kicked off this series and we talked about what it means that to know God is to love him, and that part of loving God is loving his people, loving others around us. Maybe even this week you experienced some of that challenge. Maybe you left and you thought, all right, that's, you're right, God's word is true, I need to work on loving some people. Maybe God brought to mind that family member that's been driving you crazy and you thought for a minute, like, okay, I got to reach out, I got to take some initiative, we're going we're gonna to pursue some love. Maybe you thought of that co-worker that just gets under your skin and you thought, all right, I'm going to show some grace we're going to work with that. We're going to try, to try to pursue some love. Or maybe God laid something else on your heart. And then you got into the throes of the week and you realize that family member is still annoying, right? That coworker still gets under your skin. And all of a sudden you like hit the challenge of love and you thought like, oh, that, I, too much, too much. I'm trying God, but this is just too much, right? The, it's when we hit the challenge of love that sometimes I think we need the words of encouragement to say, hey, this might be hard. Loving is hard. But you can do this. You have what's necessary to actually live this way and the way God calls you to live. Well, this morning, we come to a section of the letter where John wants to begin to offer some encouragement. It's kind of sandwiched right in between two significant challenges. If you remember last week, John essentially challenged us to say, if you're walking in the light of God, then you will not hate your brother. You will love them. And likewise, in verse 15, we're going to encounter another significant challenge today in what it means for us to love and learn to love. But in the middle of that, John wants to give us a little bit of encouragement. He wants to come alongside like a coach, give us a little pep talk and say, hey, you can do this. Don't forget what you have available to you. You can actually see it if you look with me at verse 12. Right here in the passage, John writes and he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So John wants to give us a little encouragement this morning and what it looks like to love and what he encourages us to do that if we're to learn to love is that we need to embrace who we are in jesus John moves from this challenge of what it means to live in the light of God and love one another, all of a sudden to move into the most poetic, structured section of his entire letter. You could probably hear it or even see it if you're looking at it. John has this all of a sudden rhythm where he's, I'm writing to you, and then he identifies an audience, and then he gives a reason, and then he kind of goes through, and he, he almost parallels himself. He addresses these three audiences at the first half of the, pa- of the section and then addresses them again repeatedly kind of clarifying and encouraging in the second half. And through it all, John wants to encourage us in our identity. The natural question when you read this that you begin to ask is, well, who, who is John actually writing these things to? Is he writing this encouragement to actual groups of people? Is he writing to children, to fathers, and to young men? Or is there something else here that's going on? Well, I would encourage you that there is something else here that's going on, that John is actually writing metaphorically here. He's using children, fathers, and young men to speak of the different kind of aspects of spiritual maturity and what it looks like to embrace the identity that we have as we grow in our spiritual maturity in The Lord, the scripture uses commonly the idea of growth in different stages of life as metaphors for our own growth in the Lord. And you actually get this clue for why John is using this more metaphorically to speak and encourage all of us, just not specific groups, by his opening phrase of, I'm writing to you, little children. John actually uses that phrase technically throughout the letter and throughout other writings that he has to refer to the church and the people that he is writing to. He has a fatherly affection for them. And so his language is to identify them as little children. You actually see this later in the passage in 2.28 where he says, and now little children abide in him. It's a term of endearment that he uses for the whole church. And John kind of uses at the beginning to signify that he's now speaking to all of us. But he wants to encourage us in kind of our growth of spiritual maturity to remember who we are in Jesus so he highlights these parallels to encourage us in our identity. The first thing that he wants to remind us is that in Christ, you are God's forgiven child. The first two parallels that he has is, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Then towards the end of 13, he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. John wants to remind us that when we come to trust in God and come to trust in Jesus... That you and i experience forgiveness and the verb tense to he use here is a, to signify a once and for all forgiveness when you trust in jesus your sins are forgiven that's a truth we need reminded of time and time again because i don't know about you but i screwed up sometimes royally this week and i felt the guilt of my own sin again and i need reminded that in christ i'm forgiven and i'm not forgiven for my perfection or my performance i'm not forgiven because of me I'm forgiven because of God. I'm forgiven for his name, for what he has done. It's a forgiven not based on my identity. It's a forgiveness that's based on his identity and his action, which means it's a total forgiveness, one that we can trust in. When you come to know Christ, when you believe in him for the first time, you experience that forgiveness and you begin to experience that relationship. That's why John says later you know God. To trust in Jesus is to enter into an intimate personal relationship with God, a theme that we see throughout this book. So in Christ, this is part of your identity. But he also reminds us that in Christ, you know God. You know, he says to fathers, you know him who is from the beginning. He repletes that line twice in the poem. And what he wants to remind us is that as you mature in Christ, as you grow to that place of spiritual maturity where you are able to build into others, What you come to experience is more and more intimacy and connection with God. The God who is always there. The God who is from the beginning. That part of our spiritual maturity is growing in intimacy with God. Yet it's easy sometimes for us to stall or to stagnate in that relationship. And that's why John wants to remind even those of us that are mature, you know God. Be reminded that you know him and you have known him intimately. Don't forget that relationship because if you're going to learn to love... And it's going to start with that knowledge, that understanding of God. And finally, he reminds us that in Jesus, we're victorious and strong. He uses the metaphor here of young men. It's a very technical term for men who had reached full physical maturity. What he's saying is those that grow in Christ, and as you grow in Christ, you experience more and more of his victory. To young men, to those in that place, you you have overcome the evil one, he says twice. You're an overcomer, a conqueror, that you grow in your ability to overcome the sin and temptation that often plagues our life. Now that's a process, that's a process of growing up, but it's something that's available to us in Jesus. We grow in our applying the victory that he has won for us. And John says we're strong not in our own strength but in the strength of God's word because it abides in us. That God's word abides in us and therefore we grow in spiritual strength. Spiritual maturity results in growth that over time comes to defend, defeat Satan and sin. And so John wants to remind us this is who you are church. In Jesus this is what's available to you. You're forgiven. You're his child. You know him and have entered into a relationship with him and are growing in that. You're victorious and you're learning to overcome in the power of Christ and his victory through his death and resurrection. And what John wants us to realize is that if we're to learn to love, we have to start with our identity because the call to love flows out of who we are. And it's only by learning to embrace our identity in Christ that we will have the resources and the ability necessary to grow in our love for both God and others. Identity is hugely important for encouraging us in who we are and how we are called to live. Tony Campolo in his book, It's Friday but Sunday's Coming, shares a great illustration of the impact of understanding our identity can have on our lives. In that book, he tells the story of Fred Craddock, who was a professor at Phillips Theological Seminary, and Fred one day took a vacation with his wife to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and they awoke one morning early to go have breakfast together, and while they were having breakfast, an older gentleman approached their table and asked Fred, what do you do for a living? In in the story, Professor Craddock, kind of wanting to get rid of the old man and kind of move on to the conversation he was having with his wife, said, well, I'm a professor of homiletics, which would scare most people off if that was the answer that was given. But this old man was dissuade, and he said, oh, you're a preacher. Well, let me tell you a story about a preacher. And he sat down at the table next to them, and he began to tell this story. He said, I was born an illegitimate child. I never knew who my father was, and that was very hard on me. The boys at school had names, they called me, and they made fun of me. And when I walked down the main street of our little town, I felt that people were staring at me and asking that terrible question. I wonder who that father of that boy is. I spent a lot of time by myself, and I didn't have any friends. But one day, a new preacher came to town, and everybody was talking about how good he was. I'd never gone to church before, but on Sunday, I thought I would go in here and preach. And he was a good preacher. I kept going back. Each time I would go late and leave early so I wouldn't have to talk to anybody. Then one Sunday I got so caught up in the preacher's message I forgot to leave and before I knew what was happening he had said the benediction and the service was over. I tried to get out of the church. But people had already filled the aisles and I couldn't get past them. Suddenly I felt a heavy hand on my shoulder and when I turned around that big tall preacher was looking down at me and asked, what's your name, boy? Whose son are you? I just shook when he asked that question. But before I could say anything, he said, I know who you are. I know who your family is. There's a distinct resemblance that I see. Why, you're, you're the son of God. You know, mister, the words cha- those words changed my life. The old man said. And then he got up and left. A few minutes later, the waitress came over and asked Fred, Do you know who that was? Fred answered, No, he had no idea who the old man was. And the waitress said, That's Ben Hooper, the former two term governor of Tennessee. You see, there's something about knowing your identity and whose you are that impacts. And encourages you in how you are called to live. Just the right encouragement to remind us who we are leads us to that place where we feel empowered to be able to live and be what God has called us to live and be. And so if we are truly to learn to love, John knows it's only by embracing our identity in Jesus that we will learn And be reminded of who we are so that we can love the way God calls us to love. We're his children. We're forgiven. We can know him. We're victorious. And so this morning, I want to remind you, if you're struggling with the challenges sometimes of what we will continue to experience in God's call to love, don't go back to your effort. Go back to your identity Be reminded of who you are in Jesus. Be reminded of what's available to you through his death and resurrection and the power of his Holy Spirit. Remember whose you are, that you are a son or you are a daughter of God and let that lead you to the place where you pursue love. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's your starting point. You don't have the ability to love the way God calls to love, apart from a relationship with him. But God makes that relationship available to you by inviting you to just put your trust in his death on your behalf and his resurrection from the dead. But once you've received that encouragement and you're reminded of your identity to encourage us to live it out, John then begins to move back and challenge us in how we learn to love. So in verse 15, we move back into a place of challenge, and John gives us a very clear command. Look at it with me. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So not only do we need to embrace who we are in Jesus, John now calls us that we need to reject what the world has to offer. For John, the call here to not love is the idea of not embracing, not devoting, not committing yourself to, but instead rejecting the world. Now, you might think for a second, like, hold on, I thought God liked the world. Isn't there that, like, real famous verse in the Bible that says, for God so loved the world, now I'm told not to love the world? Like, that seems confusing. Well, the Bible uses the world in a couple of different ways, and it's important for us to know what John means when he says, do not love the world. Sometimes the Bible uses the world in a reference to all of humanity, to the nations and people of the world. And for that, God certainly calls us to love. When John John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, it's a reference to the people of the world. That he sent his one and only son, And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What a great truth and demonstration of God's love. And we are called to love the people of the world. But what John means when he uses the world and where John uses the world is John's using it to reference to the way of life that's contrary to God and under the power of the evil one. For John, the world is the systems and institutions The power structures and attitudes and values that stand contrary and opposed to God's kingdom, to God's ways, to God's will. It's the way of life that stands opposed to the way God calls us to live. So when John says, do not love the world, he's saying don't love the things of the world that are contrary to God. And he's clear. Don't embrace those things. Don't even love the things that are connected to them. Don't desire the world and the things of the world. Our world is constantly vying for our attention and our love. It's calling us to love things that are contrary to God. It holds up cultural idols continually to say, this, this is what will satisfy you. This is what your life should be marked by. Whether it's power, wealth, status, material possessions, sex, you name it. Our world is continually putting forth values that are saying, this is what you should pursue. This is what you should love. And John says, no, do not love those things. Do not love the things of the world that are contrary to God. Why? Why does John make such a stark call? Why is it important for us to not love the things of the world if we're to learn to love the way God wants us to love? Well, John gives us two reasons. The first is because the love for God and the love for the world are incompatible. You cannot love one and love the other. John says that very clearly. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. To love the world will always lead you to a greater hatred for God. Maybe it doesn't seem like it at first, but that's the fruit that is always born. To love God will always lead you to not loving the things of the world. They're not compatible because the things of the world are not from God. And so to love them leads you away from him. It leads you into sin. It leads you into disobedience. That's what John's essentially saying. Listen, the things of the world lead you to a place where you will turn from God, trust in yourself, and disobey. In fact, in this passage, he's referencing the original sin where people turn from God and trusted in themselves. This descriptor that he gives, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride and possession, seems to be a clear reference back to the fall of human beings in the garden. In fact, you can see those elements in the first act of disobedience. Look at Genesis 3, verse 6. I'll put it on the screen for you, but I want to read it from my Bible. In Genesis 3, verse 6, God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree that was in the garden. One rule, that's all God gave him, one rule. But listen what it says in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, when her appetite was engaged, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that there was something to be desired, and her desire and affections were engaged, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate her. And he ate, he ate, sorry, not he didn't eat her, wow. He ate with her. Man, those words are important. (laughs) But note the key. Note what Satan uses here to move her from a place of trusting God to distrust. To moving from a place of loving God to not loving God. He uses her appetite, her affections, her ambition. And it's the same thing that the world now uses to try to move us from a place of loving God into a place of sin. That's essentially what John's trying to highlight in the passage, right? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, you and I have natural appetites that are a part of the way God created us. But what the world does is the world comes and it preys on those things. And says we can find the fulfillment for those appetites not in God and His ways, but in the world and its ways. Life's too much. It's stressing you out. Just a few more drinks. Just one hit of this. Just one escape. One vacation. One binge. Don't go to God. Run to the world to fulfill the natural appetite that you have. You want love. You want intimacy. You want connection. Don't go to God. You can find that on a computer screen or your TV. You want self-worth? You want to feel better about yourself? Just put a few other people down. Just compare yourself. Don't find your identity in God. Find it in your achievement. Find it in your effort. Find it in your work. The world is constantly coming and taking our natural appetites and distorting them away from God and towards sin. But not only that, it presents sin in a way in which it seeks to stir up our affections. It's to be a delight to to the eyes or a desire of the eyes. We, you and I, are consumed. Our desires are often controlled by what we see. Every advertiser knows this. It's why you're inundated with images constantly. Images, right, are more than a thousand words. Because when we see something, it activates within us desires, and the world is constantly putting things in front of us to say, you should desire this. Go after this. You need this. This next thing. This next experience. You don't need God. You need more of what we have to offer. And finally, it comes and it manipulates our ambition. It's the pride in possessions. Pride, that root of all evil. That we want to be like God. We want his knowledge, his wisdom, his self-autonomy. And the world comes and says, you can have it. Just follow our ways. Jesus was tempted the same way by Satan. Bow to me. And we're tempted constantly. But what John wants to remind us is because the world is constantly moving towards sin, if you fall into the trap of loving the world, you will begin to live in a way where you don't love God. If you love these things you pursue the sinful cultural values and tendencies in our world, it will lead you to not love God. You you have to choose. At some point in your life you must choose, will I love God? Will I serve Him? Will He be the thing that controls and rules my heart and my affections, my ambition, my devotion, or will it be the world, the enemy, the things that are contrary to God? Your heart has only room for one thing upon the throne and you must make the choice of whether you will serve God or whether you will serve the values of the world. It's like the old Bob Dylan song off his Slow Train Coming album. You got to serve somebody. All right, he writes, you may be a construction worker working on a home. You might be living in a mansion or you might live in a dome. You might own guns and you might even own tanks. You might be somebody's landlord. You might even own banks, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And it might be the devil, or it might be the Lord. But at some point, you got to make a choice. And that choice affects everything. When you choose the world, it will lead you away from God. There's no neutral. Love of the world is hatred to God. Hatred of the world is love towards God. John makes that clear, and it's why he calls us to say, listen, we need to be people who do not value what the world values, we don't pursue the world's goals for God's kingdom. And we, we need reminded, I, I think even this week, we were reminded of what happens when the church pursues worldly things and loves just a bit of the world, how that leads us far away from living with love the way God desires for us to live. You know, I was saddened, like many of you probably, when I saw the riots that took place in Washington, D.C. And what bothered me in some ways wasn't just the fact that it happened, was the number of things and people I saw who were promoting Jesus in the midst of it happening. Signs that connected Jesus and Trump. Signs carried throughout demonstrations that claimed Jesus saves And I thought, how? How can we get to a point where somehow Christianity has tied itself to this level of extremism? Well, it didn't happen last week. It's been cultivated over decades. It's been cultivated within evangelicalism by a church culture that has slowly loved just a little bit of the world. Just a bit. If you go back and you wonder, how do we reach even this part where Christianity is so tied to some even these elements of extremism, and you study it a little bit, and I might get myself in trouble here, but we're just going to go for it this morning because I think it's important. I think we've reached a crux where if we don't talk about it, not just for our church, but even in a nation, we will repeat the same mistakes. And if you look back in the story of evangelicalism within our society, for the large majority, Christians often, as the world, continued to pursue its values as it did, live slightly separated. We wanted to be distinct. But then there came a point where we realized that the world was infringing on our distinctness. And we decided to fight back. And the way that evangelicals decided to fight back was to begin to form a political movement that was known as the Moral Majority. And the moral majority sought to use political power and political influence to influence politics to try to move America back to the moral standard that they felt like had been lost. Now, in some ways, that's not bad, right? We want God's righteousness. We want justice. We want those things. But the way that they sought to do that was by tying themselves to the power of political movements most namely the Republican Party. And for several years, the church started to lose its way. It started to tie itself to power. It started to compromise itself, not calling out in conviction when sin was present, but minimizing it for its goal of achieving what it wanted to in politics. What happens when that happens is we become easily manipulated. Jesus very clearly states in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And it's easy for us sometimes even collectively as a cultural, to desire cultural power more than we desire the way of Jesus. And it's been exposed. It has been. And yet, it has not just been exposed on one side, it is exposed on both sides. Christianity cannot be beholden to political agendas on either side of the aisle. My point this morning, as some of you respond, is not to just harp on one section. It's only to expose the reality that no matter what, whether what side we are on, when we tie our values to the values of the world, we will lose our way. Certainly, I have seen this week Christians who said, if you were a part of this movement at all, if you supported Donald Trump at all, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. That's just as equally as wrong. Certainly the left, has moved in ways that are against, contrary to God's ways as well. The problem is when we start to develop a mindset that says, well, we'll compromise who we are. We'll compromise our values. We'll compromise just a little bit. No, we are called to be distinct. God's kingdom does not come through the values of the world. And we must, all of us, collectively be careful to not value the things of the world to not let the agendas of politics drive the agendas of the church, or else we will find a church that no longer loves God in the way it is called to, but is marked by other things. And John says, if we're to learn to love, do not love the world or the things in it. And we not only are called to not love the world because of its values, But John closes by reminding us that we're not called to love the world because it is passing away. It's temporary. It is not eternal and it is not connected with God's eternal kingdom. To cultivate love for something that is temporary is fruitless. Imagine. Imagine if I came to you and I said, Hey, I'm going to buy a car. I need to buy a car. You're like, Oh, great. What kind of car do you want to buy? I was like, Listen. I found this awesome car, it cost $20,000. You're like, whoa, okay, that's a significant investment. Tell me about it. You're like, well, it's a little bit rusted out, got a few mechanical problems. How's about 240,000 miles on it? You'd be like, "Uh, for 20 grand? What are you, like, that doesn't seem like a wise investment. Like, that car might not even last you the week, let alone like what you need it for. And what John essentially says is, if we're not careful, when it comes to our lives, when we fall into a place of loving the world, we can begin to invest our time, our talents, our treasures, our energies in things that are temporary, that are fleeting, that are not eternal. There will come a day where we will all step towards eternity. And there are only things that will carry into that place. It won't be our houses or our bank accounts or our titles or our achievements. No, those things are fleeting. In fact, Scripture tells us what will abide. Paul famously says in 1 Corinthians 13, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Love love for god and love for others these are the things that will abide into god's eternal kingdom these are the call, are the things we are called to invest in and so john says don't love the world because when you love the world you invest yourself in temporary things instead invest in god's kingdom love others the way he has called you to serve follow his ways and his kingdoms of all of all other competing loves and desires because that will be the thing that carries on. I'll close with this. I think it's a great reminder and illustration of what John calls us to here, to invest our energy in God and his kingdom and the love that he has called us towards. There's a man a number of years ago named Charles Thomas Studd. And C.T. Studd lived in the 19th century and was born into a significantly wealthy Family in England. He was schooled at the top schools, came from wealth, had wealth. He also managed to become one of the top cricketers in the entire nation. He was famous as an athlete in his day. In fact, he would have been on par with some of our wealthy athletes that you think of today Tom Brady, LeBron James. But CT Studd, as a young man, had an encounter with Christ and he came to put his faith and trust in Jesus. And that began to change everything for young charles until one day he felt like the lord was calling him to missions and he decided to willingly give up his wealth his titles his pursuits and his fame he would board a boat and he would sail to china where he would over the next rest of his life serve as a missionary to china india and then eventually africa he gave up everything for the cause of christ to love the unreached, to love the least. And yet, later in his life, C.T. would reflect back on the choice that he had made, and he would write a poem called Only One Life. And this poem, in many ways, has, I think, serves to remind us that all of us have the choice and opportunity of where we invest our life and time. ct wrote two little lines i heard one day traveling along life's busy way bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart only one life twill soon be passed only what's done for christ will last only one life yes only one soon will its fleeting hours be done then in that day my lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat only one life twill soon be passed and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. John invites us on the pathway of learning to love, that you and I, we all make the choice. We have one life. Will we use it to love God, to love his people, to love our world? Not its values, not its systems, its people. Will we be marked by his kingdom? Will we invest all that we have in his ways, Will God be glorified that we're a church that uses our way, our lives, ultimately, to honor and to glorify Christ Jesus. Only one life. We pray that we would be a church that carries on into eternity the love and joy and hope that God so desires for us to. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father. We reminded ourselves, even before we engaged this text, of just the incredible love that you have for us. You, O God, in your grace and in your kindness, loved us. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even as we remember that love, God, we are so grateful. And I pray it would stir within us our heart and desire to love you love your ways, to love your kingdom, to love our Lord and Savior even more. And even now, God, as we just prepare to remind ourselves of that extravagant love, would it, would it lead, would it affirm our hearts, who we are in you, our identity in Christ? Would it call us to be distinct people who love differently because we follow a different king marked by his love in our lives? Move, I pray, help us, I ask. Your holy and precious name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebibleorg connect to introduce yourself today.